This morning we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 32. I chose this passage because it's a very close parallel to the passage we're going to look at in the book of Colossians. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught of him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Our sermon this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. That's Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Lord, these words that we have just heard are words of life. These are wisdom from above. These are showing us who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we pray that as now we hear from you, we pray that you would give us understanding in your spirit, that you would give us uh, a desire, changed hearts who love you and want to obey you and can see that our only hope really is in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would bring salvation and sanctification as we come to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You see this passage here set out in front of us. Remember where we've been. He says, put to death. Paul says, put to death, therefore. So remember, he's, he's pointing us back to what he's just said. Remember, I said all of this chapter is really laying out what it looks like to be connected to Christ and to be focused on his priorities. This entire chapter is about that. Last time, we looked at what it meant to be united to Christ. We saw that in these first verses, in verses 1 through 4, Paul says, this is a given, this is the foundation of your life, that when you are saved, you are connected to Christ, you're united to Christ in everything that he is and all that he's done, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign and his return. All of those things matter for your life. And Paul said, because you're like that, because you're connected to Christ, that's why you need to be focused on heaven. You need to be looking up to Christ. Our lives are meant to be lived according to the priorities of heaven. We need to be Christ-shaped people. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul is going to say more about what that kind of life looks like. What does it mean to be heavenly-minded and united to Christ? Now, he's only going to focus on one part this morning. He's going to focus on what we could call mortification of sin or killing sin. That's the way to remember this. This whole passage is about killing our sin. Now, the main idea as we look at this passage is that you and I can and should fight sin in our lives because we are a new man united to Christ. You and I can and should fight the sin in our lives because we are a new man united to Christ. As we look at this passage, Paul's going to give us two clear commands. He's going to say we need to kill our evil desires. We also need to kill hatred and the fruit that comes from that. And then, in our third section here, he's really going to point us to what is the gospel, because those commands that he gives us are flowing from the gospel. They're applications from the gospel. They flow from what we have in Christ. So if you want to think of points, you can say, really, there's two basic points, that we need to kill sin. That's number one, and you see that really in verses 5 through 9. We need to kill sin. But also, we can do that, secondly, because we have Christ. And that's really verses 9 through 11. So we need to kill sin because we have Christ. Now, Paul begins with the need to kill sin. We need to be killing the sin that we still find in our lives. And he starts with the need to kill our evil desires. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And in this one phrase, we have, you could say, a problem and a solution. The problem that Paul points out is that each one of us has parts of us which are still what he calls earthly. If you remember from verse 2, that's an important word because Paul is contrasting the things that are in heaven, the heavenly things, to the things that are earthly, the things on earth. So this is not a good thing. You should not have earthly things in your body. Earthly means sinful. It means part of this evil age. It means opposed to God. 
And Paul then goes ahead and he lists particular sins that fit that. He says sexual immorality. He says impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Each one of us has those sins. Each one of us has those sins. And actually, we have many more sins in our lives. And this is true for Christians. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians. God has saved us from the power and the penalty of sin in Jesus Christ. But we still have the presence of sin. And that sin sticks closely to us. It's not sin somewhere out there. That's how we like to think about sin. Sin is somewhere out there. No, Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. See, the problem is that we have lots of sin that remains in us. The problem is inside of us. Now, if we don't believe this, if we don't believe this truth, then our fight against sin isn't going to be very effective. For instance, if we think that the real problem is outside of us, then we're going to spend our energy fighting other things. We're going to fight the world. We're going to fight everything outside of us instead of focusing on ourselves. And so often when we look outside, it's easy to blame other things for the problems and sins that we have instead of looking to see our own sin. But also, if we don't believe how sinful we really still are, then we won't try very hard to fight sin or we'll be satisfied with some kind of shallow result. You know, if you think you have a small problem, then you don't need to do too much. A small problem calls for a small solution. But if you see a big problem, if you see that you have a big problem with sin, then you will do a whole lot more to fight sin. These these truths that I'm saying here, they're not meant to discourage us, right? They're not meant to discourage us, but each one of us needs a reality check. Paul in this passage is holding up a mirror to us in our lives and saying, this is what's true of you. Do you see yourself clearly in Christ? Now, the specific sins that Paul mentions here all seem to do with evil desires. This first list is really about evil desires, things that have gone haywire. He says, first, there's sexual immorality. He says, this term covers things like physical intimacy before marriage. Think of adultery, pornography, and many other kinds of sins. And each one of these sexual sins is driven by our deep, wrong desires. We want what we shouldn't have. That also shows up with impurity as well. Impurity is a related sin, It's referring to other kinds of sexual sins. If you look down the list, passion is the next one. Passion is lust, a sinful desire for someone else who is not yours. Then there's more generally evil desires and covetousness. These, again, are just bigger picture ideas of wanting things that God has not given us. Notice what Paul says here. As he ends this list, he looks at coveting, which is in some ways is at the root of all of these sins. And he says, coveting is idolatry. That's really what happens when we have misplaced desires or wrong desires. That should be a shocking statement to us, that coveting and those kinds of wrong desires are idolatry. But it's true. Because you are desiring or really worshiping something other than God. That's what's going on here. Just a practical application. We should not underestimate the sinfulness of our desires. 
often we focus on the external sins. Oops, I said the wrong thing. Oh, I did something bad. Paul points us inward to the heart. And he says, you, in the very desires that you have, are actually a sinner. That's where the battle needs to take place. Now, Paul says, this is the problem that is facing each believer here constantly. Sin within us. Paul's solution fits the seriousness of the problem. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Put to death. Think about that command for a moment. Our fight with sin is a fight to the death. We are meant to actively be rooting out and cutting out sin in our lives. It is not enough just to avoid temptation. We need to be going and attacking the root of our sins. Let me take sexual immorality for, as an example. It's true. If you struggle with that, and I think we all do to some extent, you need to avoid temptation. You need to stay far, far away from things that will draw you to commit those sins. But staying away from ten- temptation is not enough. Okay? That is not really putting sin to death. You're making sure the sin doesn't get bigger, yes, but we need to go deeper. We need to go to root out that discontentment, that, that lust or coveting that are at the root of all those kinds of sins. Yeah, I, I thought about this week as I was out in the garden weeding. I don't like to weed, but I had an opportunity to weed the garden. And I thought there's a really easy way to weed the garden. I just reach over there and I, I just pick really quickly. It makes the garden look really great. The only problem is I haven't actually pulled out the weeds. I pulled out the leaves. I pulled out the flowers, just the top part. But I haven't dug down to the roots to get those weeds out. That means if I do that, next week they're all going to come back again. I need to go for the roots. And that's what we need to do for our sin. It is not enough to just fight sin a little bit, to take out the very superficial or external things. No, God says to go for the root. We are seeking to kill sin, not just wound it. Let me ask you this. How many times are you and I praying for God to show us the roots of our sin? I often find myself praying, again, that God would keep me from doing certain things or saying certain things. But are we praying for him to work on the roots instead of just on the fruit that really bothers me about my sin? We need to be praying and fighting at the very deepest levels of our hearts. And that's true for all of our sin. We need to be putting all sins to death. It's true Paul mentions particular sins, but the principle applies to everything in our life. If every sin is rebellion against God, then every sin needs to be killed. There are no holidays and there are no peace treaties in this war with sin. You also don't get to retire at some point to take a nice vacation. That's not how this works. And also, there are no pet sins, no things that we can give a special pass to and just leave alone for a while. No, we are fighting all sins all the time. That's an obvious question, though. Why? Why should we be fighting so hard? Well, we've seen that sin is an offense against God. That's true. But the seriousness of the situation is also more. John Owen has a wonderful little book, The Mortification of Sin. If you have not read that, this is my book plug. Please go read that. But in it, he says this. He says, 
Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. See, our fight with sin is not just a fight to the death where we are trying to kill sin. Sin is trying to kill us. That's what Satan wants. He wants to tear us down. He wants to take us away from God. This is a life and death struggle. That's the situation, and those are the stakes as you look at your sin. When you hear Paul's command here, and you begin to understand how impossible it seems, be comforted. You and I are not in this fight by ourselves. No, in fact, we are depending completely on God. In Romans 8.13, Paul writes that the Holy Spirit is providing the power we need for this fight. He writes, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice what he said. He didn't say, if you try really hard, if you just wake up tomorrow and you set your mind on it, you will live. No, he says, if by the Spirit and by the Spirit alone you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. There is no other way for us to kill our sin unless God himself is the one at work in us and through us. It's true. We need to use the means he's given us to fight our sin. We need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer asking for his help. We need to be in worship. All of these things, but these are completely ineffective. They will do nothing for you without the power and presence of the spirit. That is what we need. We need to be fighting sin by the spirit. And actually, as we go further in verses 6 through 7, Paul explains more about why these sins need to be put to death. Paul says, firstly, that these sins are the very reason that the wrath of God is coming. See that in verse 6? It's interesting that he would tell believers this, because we know as believers that we're actually not under God's wrath at the final judgment. Look at a place like 1 Thessalonians 1, where Paul says that Jesus has saved you from that coming wrath. And yet, even though we won't face God's judgment in that way, Paul points us to God's wrath at the final judgment. Paul is showing us that God hates sin. God hates our sin too. He hates rebellion against him. And as a holy God, he will judge sin. In other words, Paul is saying, look at sin the way God sees it and hate and fight against our own sin like that. Paul's second reason here to put these sins to death is that these belong to our past life. He's saying, look at these sins as something in your rearview mirror. He says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them. These sins that he's described here were all that we could do apart from Christ. That was our life to walk and live and do these things. This is what describes you if you are not in Christ. Think of Ephesians 2. Paul says you were dead. He's talking to Christians. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Hopefully you can say with Paul, that is in the past for me. That is what Paul is saying here. Paul's point here is that you have been changed. When you have come to Christ in faith, you have been changed. And these sins should no longer characterize us. Now, we'll see that change more clearly in verses 9 through 10. But here, Paul is showing that there is a clear break between our lives in sin and our lives in Christ. And we need to live like that. We need to live in light of that clear break by attacking our old ways of life. 
Now, Paul actually keeps going, and he's talking more about this, you used to be like this kind of thing. But now, he keeps talking about that looking, if you want to look with me, at verse 8. Because he says, that applied to that those other sins that I've already talked about, but also, it applies to hatred. Hatred and its fruits, in verses 8 through 9. He says, but now, now you're different. Now Christ has saved you, and now that means... You must put these sins all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Now, as believers in Christ, get rid of those sins. Now, just like before, Paul lists just a few sins. He's not trying to be exhaustive. And Paul's focus in this list seems to be on hatred and what hatred produces. Hatred leads to that anger and wrath directed toward other people. It's the malice, the evil intentions that we find in our hearts. And then our hatred comes out in the words we say, either slandering someone by saying false things about them, or by obscene, filthy, abusive language that we use, or by lying to one another. Think about it. Each one of these sins is the complete opposite of loving your neighbor. No, it's actually hating your neighbor. That's what Paul is describing. So both in terms of our evil desires and also our hatred and the fruit that that brings, Paul is saying we need to be fighting that sin. We need to be fighting those sins and all of our sins in our lives to the full depth and extent of those sins to the very end of our lives. You and I will be fighting sin to the very moment that we die. Those are big commands. Those are huge commands. Those are life-shaping commands. But the encouragement is that those are commands that you and I can do. We've already seen the work of the Spirit, but Paul is going to show us now that we have a great God. We have a great salvation in Jesus Christ, and this is the reason that we can kill sin. That's what we we see secondly, that we have Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11. Now, if you're following along with what Paul says here, there doesn't seem to be a very clear break, right? Um, He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. There's no uh, for this reason or, or therefore. You find that a lot in Paul. Not here. But Paul is really starting a new section. And he's telling us now why we can kill sin. Why can we do those things? And he says we can kill sin because we've been changed. See, Paul points us back to our salvation. This is when we put off the old self with its practices and we put on the new self in our salvation. When Paul talks about the old self and the new self, or you might see in your translation, old man and new man, He's talking about our nature, who we are at the core of our being. And Paul says there is a moment in our lives when our nature is changed, made completely different. When we go from having that old sinful nature to having a new, renewed, even holy nature in Christ. Now each one of us, by default, we we have that old man. We have that old sinful nature. That's what we get from Adam. We are conceived and born with that evil, sinful old man. And in salvation, our nature has to be changed. It's not just enough for us to be forgiven of our sins. 
It is not just enough to be adopted as sons. No, before all those things happen, we need to have our very natures changed. We need to be changed at the core of our being to be able to believe in Jesus, to be willing to serve him, to want to be in a relationship with God. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He does that in regeneration. You know, in the Old Testament, regeneration is described as the the Holy Spirit taking out those hearts of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. That's the change we need. Or in the New Testament, regeneration is described as a new birth, a new birth brought about by the Spirit. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the focus is clear. There needs to be a change. You need to be made new. Now, some people have read these two verses and thought Paul was talking about our our sanctification, our growth in holiness here. Like like putting off that old man and putting on the new man is is a process. But no, Paul is pointing back to salvation. He's talking about when you have come to faith. That's a very important point to make because Paul is telling the Colossians to kill sin because they have been changed. All of Paul's commands really rest on this change which happens in our salvation. You can think about it this way, actually. What Paul is doing in this entire passage is he is telling the Colossians to be who they are. They are supposed to be killing sin because they now are a new man. But it's more than just supposed to be doing something. No, they're actually able to do this, to keep these commands because the Holy Spirit who regenerated them, who gave them that new nature, is the one at work in them to make them holy. So Paul is talking about regeneration here. He's talking about that change, but he's also actually going a whole lot deeper because putting on the new self means putting on Christ. You and I like to think of ourselves as as individuals. We focus a lot on ourselves, I think. That's not what happens in the Bible, though. In the Bible, God says that each one of us is either connected to Adam or we're connected to Christ. Those are the only two options. If we are in Adam, then we are sinners bound for hell and we need help. And in our salvation, God gives us that help because he breaks that union, that connection with Adam, and he brings us into relationship, into union with Jesus Christ. Maybe to use Paul's words here, in our salvation we have put off Adam in his sin and we have put on Christ in his resurrection life. This really is the past change that anchors all of our Christian life. We have been united to Christ and our natures have now been changed. And because of that, we can actually fight sin and pursue righteousness. Because we're united to Christ, also God continues to be at work in us now in a very special way. He's given us that new man, but Paul says that he's still at work, that in that new self, God is renewing us in knowledge after the image of the Creator. What Paul describes here is a present process that God is doing in us. And Paul says that this is the process. God is renewing each one of us in Christ in our knowledge. In Ephesians 4, Paul also says that this new self, this new man, this new nature is marked by righteousness and holiness. So knowledge isn't the only thing we're getting. But Paul here in Colossians highlights our growing knowledge of God and his will. God himself is the one at work to help us to know him, to love him, and to do his will. 
Remember how the Bible thinks about knowledge, right? True knowledge of God is not just about facts. Okay, it's not just knowing about Jesus. It's not just knowing the Bible. No, true knowledge is a relationship. It is worship and service to God. And true knowledge, as you see there, leads to life changes. Knowing God leads to obedience. It's amazing to think about what God is doing in us right now to give us that knowledge that we need. But actually, it's even more amazing because he is renewing us after his own image. Did you see that? In other words, God is making us like himself. Do you remember how God made man in the beginning? He made us in his own image. Listen to Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. This is who you and I were supposed to be. We were supposed to be in the image of God. When Adam sinned, though, that image of God was damaged in us. It wasn't fully erased, but it was damaged. And now God is doing an amazing work because when he unites us to Jesus Christ in salvation, he is at work to restore us, to be like him, to be who we were meant to be, looking and acting and being just like him in righteousness, in holiness, and in knowledge. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be like God? What would it be like to be like God? I don't mean to be eternal and unchangeable. No, but I mean like this, to be in God's image. What does that look like? The amazing thing also is that we don't have to guess. We don't have to think about what that might be like because we have the answer. We have Jesus Christ. Earlier in Colossians, Paul said that Christ is the image of the invisible God. That means that you and I are being made like Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So when God is at work to make you and me just like Jesus, he's making us like his very own Son. And he's doing that because he's actually joined us to his Son. There is nobody else and nothing else we will look like except his son. We're being made like Christ in his perfect humanity, right? As Jesus, fully man, knew his heavenly father and perfectly obeyed his heavenly father and delighted to do that. His mind, his will, his affections, everything was focused on God. And that is what is being made true of us as well. It's true we won't get there in our lives now. There's going to be that constant battle of sin. God's going to be constantly at work in us. But God is doing this work. And he promises that when he receives us into heaven, who is he going to make us like? His son. We will be made perfect like Jesus. So we look at this passage. Maybe, maybe another way to summarize Paul's point here is that our sanctification, our growth in holiness, also depends completely on being united to Christ. Christ is really, truly at the center of every aspect of the Christian life. I hope that truth changes and deepens your view of sanctification 
So often we fall into this false idea, you know, there's salvation in Jesus Christ, but then there's sanctification on my own. I can do it. No, you can't. No, the power and pattern of sanctification also flows directly from Jesus Christ just as much as your salvation. That is showing the importance of Jesus Christ. And Paul recognizes just how important Jesus is in our new life. Look at verse 11. Paul says here, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And Paul has that list there. He's looking at the major cultural, religious, social divisions of his day. And he says here, in this new man, in Christ, all of those identities, they are a distant second. And those divisions that they cause, they really don't matter. This is a theme in Paul. You can look at Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 12. He brings us back to the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And the only way that this is possible... The only way this is possible is because Christ is all and in all. Christ and Christ alone in the fullness of who he is as the God-man and what he's done for us in salvation is the most important in our life. Being united to him changes every other identity, changes every other relationship you can ever have. And more than that, Paul says he is in all too. Christ is in all. We have Christ himself in us now by the Holy Spirit. What Paul is describing here, what Paul says here is you and I are a new humanity in Jesus Christ. We are a new people. It's true, our our unique identities, they're not erased in Christ. I'm always going to be a white man from America. I can't change that. I'm not going to be from China or some other place. But those distinct, different identities, they do not divide us anymore in the church, or they shouldn't. In fact, those unique identities that God has created us in, they actually bring more glory to God because he's made all of us different people from different backgrounds, different places. He's made all of that into one new man in Christ. When you think about yourself and who you are, or when you look at someone else, especially if they're very different from you, maybe their gender is different, their age, their race, their background, whatever, when you look at yourself or you look at somebody else, what comes to your mind first? Do you think about them? Do you think about the very first thing you think? Do you see them as in Christ or in Adam? Is that how you look at them? Or do you focus on everything else first? The skin, the age, the speech, the background, whatever it is. Paul is pointing us to being in Christ. Now, now Paul is going to build on what it means to be that one body, that one new man in Christ in the next passage. But for right now, Paul is reminding us of our identity in Christ. Now, you might be surprised that we started this passage with killing sin and we've ended up, seems like, in a very different place. We've been talking about being united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those feel like very, very different things. But they're connected. They're connected because they are both part of the fullness of life in Jesus Christ, a life that is set on things above in union with him. These are things that should characterize our lives together. As we close, I just want to think about how this passage hits home. What are applications we can take from this? First, I, want, I just want to 
I want to make this clear that this passage is written for believers. And as a passage like that, it is a direct challenge to those of you who are outside of Christ. These are sins here. These are sins, very serious sins that Paul is describing. Each and every one of these sins, if you find it in your own life and you are outside of Christ, you can see the judgment of God. God says the wrath of God is coming on you. He is not playing around. Do you see yourself in this passage? If you are outside of Christ, do you see your sin? And do you see God's wrath? Sometimes, met many people who say, well, it's okay, because I can fight those sins. I'm, I'm going to get better. I'll be all right. No. Paul in this passage says, you will have no success. You will never be able to conquer those sins because you are still stuck being in the old self. Everything about you loves those sins, wants those sins, is going in those directions. You will have no success fighting your sin apart from Christ. But then think about what Christ is offering in this passage. He is offering himself to you. He is offering you a new nature. He's offering you forgiveness. He's offering you new life. He's offering his righteousness, his life that he can give to you. This passage is an invitation to those outside of Christ to turn from their sins, to seek Christ, and to seek his help. But what about for believers? I find myself in this passage. I find myself in this fight with sin, and I wish, and maybe you do as well, that I were doing better. I see these sins, and I see them in my own life. But when I see that, and I read a passage like this, I also turn to other passages where I see encouragement, bold prayers in the Bible, great encouragement for us. I just want to focus on three passages and just leave you with these as we close. First, we can pray bold prayers for God to convict us of our sin and to give us help. Think about what is written in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Make that your prayer. What about this from Psalm 19? It's a bold prayer for forgiveness and for help as well. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Or finally, we read it earlier in the, ser- in the service as our assurance of forgiveness. Encouragement in Christ from Hebrews chapter 4. And I'll leave you with this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, listen to that, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I would encourage you this week, as you fight sin, go to these passages. Make these your prayers Make these your words and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray for God's blessing now. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us from our sins if we are in Jesus Christ. Lord, we will pray for any who are here who are not following you, Lord, that they would see 
that you are a gracious God who loves to forgive and is calling them to come and to trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for us who are believers that we would seek to obey you, that we would seek to kill sin in our lives. But Lord, we pray that you would give us the comfort and encouragement that this is not a job that we can do by ourselves. Instead, this is the work of you in our life and you have given us everything we need because we have, you have given us Jesus Christ. You've given us the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us encouragement in the fight. We pray that you would forgive us for the many times that we fail. And we know also that our sins are covered by your blood. We pray, Lord, that you would give us greater confidence, greater holiness, greater conviction of our sin and of your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.